I'm Claire. And I'm Natalie. And we are a licensed psychologist and licensed school psychologist and a pediatric occupational therapist. And we are here to talk to you about stories of kids and adolescents who have maybe some struggles with development or disabilities, and also the parents and the caregivers and the teachers and the therapists who love them and work with them. We've divided this podcast up into two parts. So the first part is focused more on stories and experiences that we have and that parents have shared with us about their child um, with special needs. And then the second part, we delve into more details about those experiences and what we would do with them clinically if you want some more information on that. Yep. I think that's it. Goodbye. The following message is brought to you by our lawyers. A Little Cerebral is a podcast documenting a conversation between a psychologist and a pediatric occupational therapist. This is intended as a conversation between two colleagues. We are not providing legal, medical, educational, or any other advice, recommendations, or treatments through this podcast. We're starting. We're starting. Okay. So this is Claire. And um, so for this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to read two different stories. Um, And the first one's kind of like lighter and it's more, I guess, relevant to the last episode um, about sensory processing disorder. And then the second one is generally, I would say, completely different. And it's it's um, sad as I was reading it, I like was becoming tense. Um, and I'll get into that one in a bit. But let's start with the lighter one. Okay. Okay. Cool. So I'm going to read the story. This is, um, my sister wrote this for me. So I've mentioned my sister. She has... Um, three kids, one is neurotypical, one is a child um, with sensory processing disorder, and, I, and I, would out, I would add actually anxiety with that, and then another one is on the autism spectrum and has a seizure disorder. Um, okay, so this is not about her children. This is about her goat. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to read it. So back in the fall of 2018, I made a trade with my neighbor. My three frozen chickens and ten honey bears for three of his goats. And I should add that honey bears are, she raises bees. So that's a bunch of honey oh, okay. and like plastic bears. I was like, geez, sounds dangerous. <laughs> and she, yeah, she doesn't have like dancing Russian bears and like, tutus. Wow, maybe like, I should <laughs> <report> her. <laughs> no, she does have chickens though. Okay, so it seemed like a really great deal. Of the three new goats, one was named Gigi. This story is about her. Okay, so the two other goats I got were really friendly. But she wouldn't let me come near her. And I should add, I had a goat like this when I was growing up, and her name was Gretel, and she wouldn't let me near her at all. And I was really jealous because my brother had a goat named Sunshine, and she was really nice. So, okay, so she wouldn't let her come near her. Like, run away when I approached. It just got worse and worse over time. In the spring, she had three kids, which is what you call baby goats, and I hoped it would improve our relationship, but her behavior towards me didn't get any better. And I just want to comment on that sentence because when I read this, I had to reread it like three times. Because my sister's making it sound like she had kids with the goat to improve their marriage or something. Yeah, yeah. She's like, and then, which everybody knows that it does not work. I thought it would save our marriage. Yeah. (laughs) No, I don't think that's what she meant. So when the kids were big enough, I weaned them and started to try trying to milk Gigi as you do. It didn't go well. She wouldn't come near me. I had to chase her around every day tackle her, and literally pick her up and carry her to the raised milking stand. And her goat's kind of small. It's not like a Nubian. It's a smaller goat. So up there, she constantly had tap-dancing feet and always ended up stepping in the bucket. So that means I never got, actually got any usable milk from her because you can't use milk that a goat is 
tap danced in. So I started dreading milking time and was really starting to hate having my goats. I considered getting rid of her, but thought there must be something I could do to help her not be such a dick. I found a YouTube... <laughs> <laughs> There's some swearers on this one too. <laughs> I haven't heard this before. This story, this story is amazing. Okay. I found a, a video on YouTube about how to milk difficult goats. This lady talked about how some goats were overly sensitive and how to help them cope. And it was like my eyes were opened. Maybe goats can have sensory processing disorder. Maybe goats can have anxiety. Maybe Gigi is not just an asshole. I got to thinking about the way I interacted with her and then I thought back to the way I used to interact with my daughter before I knew about SPD or knew that she had it. Oh man, maybe I was the asshole. Now, I was used to interacting with pigs and that's what we had on our farm growing up, which is true. Uh, we had goats too, but she doesn't remember them. To get pigs to do what you want them to do, you have to do a lot of yelling and hooting and chase after them. Uh, newsflash, goats aren't pigs and Gigi was definitely not a pig. So I stopped chasing her. Instead, I tricked her. I wouldn't make eye contact or approach her. I'd bring her a scoop of feed out of a familiar container and show it to her daughter. Her daughter would get excited and start following me. Gigi would follow her daughter because she didn't want to be left alone and also really likes food and didn't want to miss out. Then I'd talk to them in a low, calm, soothing voice, the same voice that I used with my daughter or used when my daughter was having trouble regulating and calming down. Then. Once I got her up on the milking stand, I used firm and constant pressure. I'd make sure to keep my hand on her teats and keep my, the back of my arm pressed up against her chest. I even talked or sang lullabies to her through the whole milking. I milked with one hand and held the bucket with the other so that I could move it quickly if she started tap dancing. Even if she got her foot in the bucket, I didn't lose my cool. I'd take some deep breaths and say, hey, hey, it's okay, I know, I know, it's too much. I know my goat couldn't understand my words, but she could understand my tone. And importantly, using calming words helped to remind me to be calm too. With Gigi, like my daughter, I found that understanding why they're acting the way they are really helps me to be empathetic and can help me calm down in the situation and calm the situation, sorry. Uh, once I properly understood my special little goat's needs, she and I had a much better relationship. Her behavior is much more manageable now that she isn't overwhelmed and she knows what to expect out of our interactions. Sure, her behavior isn't always good. Sometimes she's a naughty little goat, even leading other goats in escape plans. But really, that's typical of goats anyway. But our interactions have gotten much better, and I'm really starting to love that little girl. Isn't that cute? Yeah, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It reminds me of um, when... Right, when parents don't know that their child has sensory processing or mm -hmm. it hasn't been diagnosed or they're like, go through this phase of is it normal, is it not normal, mm -hmm. like what am I doing, like why can't my child just do this, like why can't they do it, why, 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 why? Yeah. And like what do you think the, the flip point is that is for parents where they're like, oh. Well, I mean, I think that um, part of what was helpful is that um, – Gigi was probably picking up on my sister's nonverbals or the vibes she was getting out. Yeah. And I mean, obviously there was some stuff going on that was probably sensory and she was also probably highly anxious and the, her sensory stuff probably impacted my sister. And then my sister was like not understanding cause it felt like defiance. And so then yeah. my sister was becoming frustrated because she couldn't fix the situation. And then as she became increasingly frustrated, you know, that nonverbal, type behavior or the vibes she's giving out were like 
even further dysregulating to Gigi. Yeah, totally. And then that was further dysregulating to my sister. And so I think part of it is also like when you are calm and trying to soothe another, it helps you to soothe yourself. Yeah. And this goes back, we've talked a little bit about this before, is um, when we see children who are anxious, a lot, a lot, a lot of times the parents are anxious. Yes. And it can be twofold. It could be that the parents have a predisposition to being anxious, and that's really not a problem. But when you have a child and you're overly anxious, that can encourage that child to also be anxious. Right. And that's actually, so we know that's like right brain, right brain communication, and we know that kids take cues from their parents. So sometimes kids will be anxious. And they were maybe anxious first, and the, it's like the parents are conditioned, mm. like they like it's yeah. almost like your shoulders are up, like literally, but or that idea of being tense going into a situation, like what's going to happen, right? And then the kid may or may not have been anxious in that particular situation on that day, you know, that right brain, right brain communication. They're taking a cue from their parent. Oh, something's up. I, I have need a to great be example of this actually. Okay. The other day, so my one year old. Um, I was like just really frustrated, a lot going on mm-hmm. in the kitchen, and um, he was trying to come up, and he was like crying, whatever. And finally, I um, I hadn't said anything, and I was trying to be like super cool, chill mom, and I accidentally knocked over, I was moving really fast, and I knocked over the spoon onto the floor, and he just like lost his shit because I was so tense without really saying anything. He was just on edge. So mm-hmm. something that normally would have really been no big deal to him, or maybe it would have startled him a little bit, he like just bawled. And I think that's a really good example of of when parents are just more tense. And, and it's very hard if you have a child and you're like, I don't know when this child's going to melt down. You are tense. Yeah. It is tense. It's a yeah, tense situation. It is. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, yeah, like, please don't hear this as criticism. Because it's it's hard to manage that. Yeah. Um, and so it's not criticism. Of course a person feels tense. Of course a parent feels tense. Because past experience has shown that this is soon going to become a shit show. Yeah, and like you right. want to prevent it and you don't know how. And then by unintentionally you're giving more cues. Yeah. And I mean in some of this like, you know, kids are really attuned like an insecure, and well, actually, I would say even in an insecure, some insecure or many insecure attachment situations. But so kids are attuned to their parents, right? Because that's what we're doing in that first year, year and a half, two years of life, where there's like these circle of interactions where we're making eye contact, we're upregulating, downregulating them, yeah, right. and they're learning to become attuned to us, and they're learning that they can figure out the world based on how we're reacting, and they're very like our interactions, our right brain then interact affects their responses and so I think that just going back to that yeah um, you know with babies too like it really really makes a difference and I think now you know we're seeing less um like moms are maybe our dads are spending less time with their kids and more in front of their screens yeah and putting the child down or you know even doing more sleep training and there's like a whole theory in that so i'm not gonna go into yeah. it yeah and i can I think, talk about attachment later too yeah, yeah there's a lot that has to do with that attachment like you are the person who is showing your child how to regulate mm-hmm. and if you have like a colicky baby a really fussy baby who's crying all the time and you're already a new parent, mm-hmm. you are going to be stressed. And it yeah. is very hard to regulate your child and a baby when you've been like trying to put them down to sleep for two hours and you're right. like, what the fuck, baby? Yeah. 
Right. Even if you have a nanny and a butler, like, yeah. you know, it still feels like a lot of times like you're on your own or it's just right. the two of you trying to figure this out. And there's a lot of pressure on parents. You're like trying to put them down to sleep in your plane and you're like, why isn't this working? This is your private plane. Maybe it's all like the shaking of like the plane because it's a smaller plane or like the motor. It might mm. be like that low hum of yeah, the motor. It's true. Yeah. So, and as a side note, if your child, if your baby, if you have a baby and you have to put him in the car to go to sleep. Um, you know, that I would just check out maybe what's going, what's going on there because children really shouldn't be liking to be restrained, liking that restraint in a car seat, Mm -hmm. um, or needing that vibration to go to sleep. So would that, what would that indicate? What would that be like? Red flag or? I would just say like red flag. The person I would refer you to is Michelle Emanuel, who, uh, founded this tummy time method. Okay. She's amazing. She's been interviewed on some other podcasts like Birthfall and um, Untethered, okay. and she talks about it. So check those out. Um, you can also just check out our website for more information. But she has developed this amazing method um, that's based on the social interaction with babies and the co-regulation. And part of it is like actually the tummy time piece, but there's a lot of other factors for both the parent and the baby. that okay. that So you can set up this like whole regulation piece from the very beginning. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, I think the other thing – just to mention for parents, especially mm-hmm. moms, um, you know, when you're experiencing anxiety, um, the, the first thing I would do to help that, if you're going to do any self-care, is try to, like, take care of your, your gut and what you're eating. Just as a side note. Yeah, and, and I think also having, like, healthy social outlets. I think that's really important. Like, yeah. I don't just mean having friends. I mean having people who can actually hear you and understand you. Not – not because not all friends are, like um, – Right, not, like, going to a breastfeeding group and being like, wow, this is all butterflies and rainbows. Great. I'm so glad you had, like, a kid with an easy temperament. That yeah. makes my life so much better yeah, to I'm hear so about. Yeah, I'm so happy for you. Yeah. <laughs> you want, like, friends where you can just, like, whip, like, boobs out and you're right. like, this fucking is ridiculous. Yeah, and say the word dick. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Multiple times. No judgment. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's what you need is like you need to feel heard and you need to be able to vent and you need to be able to like, you know, communicate with another human being and um, feel Yeah, supported. and not just for babies. I think that it's, it's just a lot more yeah, apparent right. for um, like moms who have babies and dads who have babies just to like that regulation piece is it's just so apparent for both the, the baby and the parent. Right. But then like, you know, fast forward like three years, four years, seven years, ten years – it's still the same thing. Yeah. But now you're dealing with more coping strategies for mm-hmm. the child, like more avoidance of certain things. So it gets harder to weed out that compensation, those compensatory strategies versus like what's actually going on in the brain and what's actually difficult. And then you can get almost like this secondary anxiety mm-hmm. um, around like, well, I don't want to do this. Like I don't want to go to school because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Not because I can't regulate before school, but because mm-hmm. I'm anticipating how hard it's going to be, mm-hmm. and now I have this like secondary anxiety about it, mm-hmm. or like, um, like so fire alarms, like for loud noises, yes. like that's such I'm a huge one, or substitutes, yeah, yeah, like I'm anticipating it's going to be bad, and so I have this like anxiety around like what's going to happen with that specific situation. And you know, a lot of schools now um, won't tell kids when there's going to be a fire alarm. Ugh. Or or they won't tell like or they yeah or they don't tell staff and I I get to some extent like you have to practice it as if it's like you know if you're gonna practice it like you want to practice it as if like you don't know what's gonna happen. That being said, I still feel like 
there's a way to work with kids and families around fire alarms. And I, I feel like part of it is, you know, if you always have access to your noise canceling headphones or whatever it is, it's helping you to feel regulated. If you always have access to that, number one, it's just going to feel like for as a child, you're going to feel like you have more control. <clears throat> Excuse me. But also I think if you know, as a, like if you're a child who has a hard time with fire alarms and you know that you can rely on the people like your para or your special ed teacher or your class, your general ed teacher, whoever, <clears throat> excuse me, who is, um, <laughs> who's, um, who's supposed to be, you know, who's, who's helping. If you know you can rely on them to help you be okay and get what you need when there are fire alarms, I think that can go a long way. Like just knowing, well, they'll know when there is one and they're going to like help me and I'm, they're yeah, going to help right. me so that there's a piece to this that I can predict. Yeah. Um, and that I, also goes back to like, right, so the Gigi story. Like, yeah. And we talked about this last time, like a hot brainstem. So seeking predictability, not mm -hmm. liking change. Sort of like those those children or animals who are like, what's going to happen? Why is this happening? Where is it happening? How long is it going to happen? And not being able to articulate those those questions either. And it's just having this feeling of like, oh my gosh, I'm unsafe, I'm unsafe, I'm unsafe. Mm -hmm. And so, and when you get into that mode and you have an experience, like, so the first time she went in, your sister went in and was trying to milk her, she had this experience that felt unsafe. Then when she sees your sister come and she's like, I can associate that too with like that unsafe feeling. Right. And then even if it is safe, it might take a while for her to be like, oh, it actually is safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be harder at first because right. her experience and her memories of that are associated with feelings right, exactly. of being really unsafe. Yeah. Um, and I, I was going to say something about, oh yeah. So you just mentioned like, so feeling unsafe, seeking predictability, not liking yeah. change, which we know is those are kind of symptoms of a lot of things. And I just want to put this out here because as a person who works in schools, sometimes when people hear that, they're like, oh, it's autism. Automatically, it's autism. And it can be. I mean, those or are definitely... Or they're like oppositional defiant disorder. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or actually, I would say the people who are um, who see kids as defiant don't even recognize that they don't like change and unpredictability. Yeah. It's just they won't. Yeah, which involves, right. If you have a defiant kid, kid, kids always act for a reason. Always, mm -hmm. always, always, yeah, always, yeah. always. So if they are defiant, something is going on. And as a parent or a professional, it is your job to figure that out. I don't. I actually don't like oppositional defiant disorder yeah, as the diagnosis because I mean, like, what are the underlying constructs? It comes from other things. It comes from yeah. other things that are happening first that are legit, like yeah, children just don't wake up one day yeah. and they're like, today yeah. I'm going to be oppositional and defiant. Yeah, and it could be like there's a pathway from ADHD. It could be something like. You know, pathological demand avoidance syndrome, which is not recognized in the U.S., but it's, um, I think I can go into that another time. But essentially you have like kids who don't like change. They don't like, um, they want predictability. Um, what was the other thing you said? Don't like change, want predictability. Um, um, something else that yeah. somebody else will remember. Yeah, you heard it. You know. Yeah, you know. You yeah. totally know. And so, um, but, but it could also be like that could be anxiety. That could be any number of things. It could be anything. It could be trauma. It could be anything. Yeah. It, and so, like, don't just go, so oh, this is absolutely 100% autism. Please, I just want to beg people who are, because I know people like this, who are very rigid and they automatically go to autism or they automatically go to trauma. It can be a lot of things. And so, and a just, mixture. And a mixture. Please of be things. flexible. Please be flexible about. Like your approach with seeing those, those are symptoms. Those yeah. are like. Right. Like yeah. a behavior isn't what's actually going on. Right. Like I act a certain way because something's going on inside. Yeah. I just, I just want to put that out there because I've had some pretty negative experiences yeah. with people insisting to me that something is a particular thing. And I'm like, 
yeah, but that's because you see it from this one lens. It could, And then somebody else who sees it from a totally different lens is sure that they're right. And it's like, yeah. well, it could be a lot of things. You know what? I, I, it reminds me of like when you're nauseous and uh-huh. you're like, oh, I feel so nauseous. But it's such a kind of like a weird feeling. It's hard, almost hard to describe. And then I'm, I'm like, I'm not making this up. Like, how can you pretend to be nauseous? Oh, I hate if nausea. I like wake up yeah. and I'm just like, oh, I'm nauseous. Like how you can't pretend no. to like act like that. no. Like, it would just be so ingenuine. Like, I don't even know. Like, how would you, like, show that you were nauseous? Right, exactly. I'm yeah, like, like when oh. kids pretend to be sick and they're like, yeah, they put their hand on their body. Yeah, it's oh. so, like, and they put their <laughs> So kids can't, kids are poor actors. They don't just, like, act defiant. No. Like, if I'm like, I'm going to act defiant. I do. I, sorry, go ahead. I, I, I do. Throw a coffee at Claire's face. <laughs> I will say that I have seen kids who are truly just straight up defiant. And, like, I think it had to do with a lack of limits being set. But it's pretty right. rare when that's all other, it is. like, parenting things that are going on, like, things at home. Yeah. Like yeah. That's... You needing to kind of declutter, be yeah. more simple, setting boundaries. There's, there's yeah. like, again, there's, like, a lot of things. Yeah. But I would say most of the kids who I've seen who actually are defiant, there's the vast majority of the time there's something else going yeah, on. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So should we read our next story? Yeah, yeah. Read okay, it. Yeah, sorry. Okay. So I'm going to actually give, um, I'm going to give, like... A shout out to my friend. So my okay. friend has a daughter, and her daughter has something called Charge, which is a genetic disorder. And she actually has a blog, and it's called The Girl in Charge, and it's about raising her daughter with pretty significant um, medical and special needs. And um, her name is Susanna Clark Taylor, or just Susanna Taylor. So The Girl in Charge, if you Google that, I think it's thegirlincharge.com is her blog. Um, so this is my friend Susanna's story. So um, the story that keeps coming to mind is one I'll probably use for my blog soon, but I'll share it with you first. Um, It's a story about how sometimes no matter how hard you try as a mother of a special needs child, sometimes it is impossible to account for every variable and on some days absolutely everything goes wrong. So this story happened several years ago when I was meeting with a representative from a medical supply company because I was hoping to get Isabel an adaptive stroller. The stroller we needed cost several thousand dollars out of pocket and we were hoping Medicaid would pay for it. And so we had to jump through all the hoops they required in order to see if Isabel qualified. We had a small regular stroller that we had been using for her, but she was quickly growing out of it and we were doing our best to plan ahead for when she got bigger. We were meeting in the offices of a medical therapy clinic that was housed in a building on the campus of, I am probably going to say it wrong here, Innova Loudoun Hospital here in Northern Virginia. Isabel had to be evaluated by a physical therapist in the presence of the medical supply company rep. But because the PT, physical therapist, they arranged for was someone I was unfamiliar with, I arranged for Isabel's regular PT from school to meet me there so she could give her input as well and so the two PTs could coordinate with each other. It was an important meeting and I was nervous because we couldn't afford what we needed on our own. She's like a stay-at-home mom because she has to like take care of her daughter. You know, she's Mm -hmm. like her case manager. Um, Sorry. And I really needed Isabel to qualify. Oftentimes, I would bring Isabel's respite worker with me to appointments, so I had an extra set of hands, but that morning she wasn't able to go with me, and I believe my husband was out of the country for work at the time, so he also wasn't able to come with me either, so I was on my own. The appointment that morning was for 10.30 a.m., and so I got my other kids out to school and planned the entire morning around the appointment. It took about 30 minutes to get there. But I had uh, wanted extra time in case Isabel was having any sensory issues that morning so I could take it slow and get her calmed down before the appointment. But as these things go, Isabel ended up having a really rough morning. 
Everything took longer than I had hoped. Nothing went smoothly. And so I found myself leaving my house right at 10 a.m., which gave me no extra time to get there. On top of that, it was a horrifically hot day. One of those days when you just start sweating buckets the moment you walk outside. It's really humid in Virginia, and so it just felt like we were melting by the time we got to the car. But we rushed out the door, even though she was screaming, and got on the road. The car was super hot because, along with everything else, I hadn't had time to start the van early and cool it off before we got inside of it. And so the heat of the van didn't help with Isabel's sensory overload. About five minutes down the road, I remembered that my husband had taken her stroller out of the back of the van because he'd needed the trunk space for something recently. I knew that but had forgotten and didn't put it back in the van that morning before pulling out. I was kicking myself but didn't feel like I had the time to turn around and get it. I just thought, oh well, I have my handicap tag and I can just park up close. I knew I still would have to carry her in my arms with the backpack, with her backpack of heavy supplies on my back, but I thought, I'll just get through it. It'll be fine. And then another 10 minutes down the road as I kept looking at the clock, hoping we didn't run into traffic, the thought occurred to me that we had gone somewhere recently in my husband's truck with the whole family, and so had taken Isabel's handicap tag out of the van and put it in the truck. So now they don't have a tag, and they don't have a stroller. Um, or she doesn't, because it's just her. So now, I not only had to carry Isabel and all her supplies, but who knew where I would have to park and how long I would have to walk. Isabel used to receive her medical therapies in that building, so I was very familiar with that, their parking lot, and so I reassured myself that I could just I would just park in that little section off to the side where I always used to be able to find parking two years earlier and kept convincing myself it would be fine. I would be fine. Everything was going to be fine, even though my stress level was increasing with every mile. So I finally pulled off the highway, and as I came around the bend and was about to pull into the parking lot, I had to slam on my brakes because the entrance to the parking lot was blocked off. Then I started to look around and realized that a huge half-built parking structure was to my right. I had been focused, so focused on getting there that I didn't notice it from the road. I drove further down and pulled into another entrance to the parking lot and attempted to backtrack to the building I needed, only to discover the entire parking lot in front of my building was torn up as well. So I sat there, feeling completely defeated as the clock struck 10.30 sharp. I was already late. So I frantically started looking for parking. A few minutes later, I finally found one in front of the building that was three buildings away from the one I needed. Because of the construction, every parking lot in front of each of the medical buildings was packed. But with no no with no choice, hurried and uh, but with no choice, hurried and I put Isabel's heavy backpack on my back and then lifted her. She was probably five years old at the time into my arms and then began to run as fast as I could. It took me forever because we were probably parked at least a half a mile away. And remember, it's really hot, if not more. And by the time I got into the building and up to the fifth floor, we were a solid 15 minutes late. I was absolutely dripping with sweat. Isabel was screaming, and everyone was looking at us like we were crazy. I could barely catch my breath. But I checked in and sat down in the hall because the waiting room was full. And we waited. And we waited. And we waited. And we waited. I knew I was there 15 minutes late, but I hoped that they wouldn't be too annoyed with me. Finally, someone came out and informed me that unfortunately there must have been a misunderstanding. According to their records, the appointment had been for 10 a.m. So I had missed my appointment completely and would have to reschedule for another time. I was stunned. I tried to protest and ask if there was any way that we could still meet, but she said that everyone had been there waiting for me, but by 10.25 when I had not shown, everyone had left and the OT that worked there was already in another appointment. In the meantime, Isabel was so hot and uncomfortable that she was laying on the floor at my feet screaming. I could barely hear the lady talking to me, and she was less than two feet away. 
So, completely defeated, I picked Isabel back up, got back into the elevator where everyone averted their eyes awkwardly, and I carried her back out into the heat where the sun beat down on her, and we proceeded to walk the half mile back across the parking lots, with a plural, to the van. The wind was blowing as well, and my long hair was so sweaty that the wind, wind wouldn't whip it around my face, and then I was, then, or the wind would whip it around my face, and then it would stick across my cheeks and forehead. I could barely see, but with a heavy, screaming, flailing five-year-old in my arms, I couldn't quite reach around to pull my sticky hair off my face, so I just walked that way, all the way back to the car. Everybody who passed looked at me uncomfortably. My back felt like it was breaking. The strain on my arms was so painful, but I just kept trudging, one foot in front of the other. Waiting at crosswalks was agony, but finally my van was in sight. A nice lady in a minivan circled around and pulled up next to me and offered me a ride to the car. I wanted to kiss her, but there was little use because my car was another 10 steps away, so I said no thank you. When I finally got Isabel back into the van and buckled, I got into the driver's seat, shut my door, and burst into tears. I sat there and cried for a long time. I had planned so carefully, or so I thought, but all the things that were normally in place, the stroller in the van, the handicap tag in the glove box, the usable parking lot, and writing down appointment times correctly, things that I usually didn't have to worry about had not been in place, and so despite my best efforts, everything had gone wrong. When I finally got home, I left Isabel in her nice, cool, quiet, calm, air-conditioned bedroom to self-soothe. I went into my room, crawled into my bed, and slept for the next two hours. So. I guess looking back, it is kind of a funny story. At least now I can laugh. But at the time, it wasn't funny at all. At the time, I felt so defeated and wondered what it was all for. But it was just one day. I did eventually reschedule the appointment. The second one went off flawlessly, and Isabel was approved. And now she enjoys she enjoys her very expensive Medicaid-funded stroller. Um, and she had she attached a picture of Isabel in her stroller with her big sister and cousin. Mm. So, like when I read this, my shoulders were tense. Like oh, the whole gosh. way, I was like, I, I like had to check in. I was like, calm down. Like this, this already happened. It's oh, not happening to you. Gosh. But it's just yeah, felt. I'm like, I mean, you just think, okay, all these things for her to manage, oh, all these gosh. variables, all these things have to go exactly right to get to high stakes appointments. Right. Yeah. It's like everything has to be lined up perfectly and then throw in the mixture, a child, you know, who obviously by no fault of her own, you know, can be chaotic and cries and yeah. has a hard time. And you have to stop and like go with the flow and manage in a situation that is completely like requires a ton of like rigidity and planning mm -hmm. and everything being just right. And it's yeah. like, well, yeah, of course parents have anxiety, right? Like, of course. Yeah. Who wouldn't be anxious and defeated in we that situation? You should just situation. do like a shout out to moms because. <sighs> yeah. That's, oh, my oh my gosh. I had um, a time where I had to take my, I had an appointment with my son and I had to take him um, way to leave. Mm -hmm. And he was kicking and screaming. So not like that because he was younger, but I also had my baby. So mm -hmm. I was holding my baby in one arm because I was late. And I didn't have, like, a carrier. So I have a baby in one arm and then kicking, screaming like a football, oh, my no. two-year-old. And again, like, everybody in the waiting room just stood there and watched. Sorry, they weren't standing because that would be a very awkward waiting room. They were sitting. <laughs> and the woman at the front desk was like, do you need any help? And, like, what is she going to do, like, walk me out to my car? So I just said, no, like, I do this all the time and just, like, walked out. So the point is, like, if you see somebody struggling – Help them. Yes. What are you doing? Right. Don't just watch. Like, we need help. Like, it is okay to help. It is okay to stand up. It is okay yeah. to put yourself on the line. Like, you need to help. Everybody needs to help each other. Right. Totally. I mean, that was exactly 
what I was thinking. Like, so the first thing that was like, came to my mind is it sucks when you're a really together person and you try to do everything right and you just want people to know I'm not like it's I take this seriously I tried really hard I just want you to know how try like how hard I try right, not just like like willy-nilly like yeah. smoking a joint in my van and then I right. show up whenever I want yeah that's not what I did and I just feel like oh that's such a horrible feeling yeah. when you feel like misunderstood and judged oh, gosh. and I, and yes, the second thing was help people. Like wh- how, how come people that she walked by through the parking lots, plural, are you telling me there was like not one person who, who's like, who didn't see her or not one person yeah. who could see her like carrying this, carry that a five year old in your arms? Like, let me help like, you. Let me I walk do? with you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let me give you a ride. Let me at least walk yeah. with you. Or like even the lady in your situation behind the desk, like even something along the lines of saying, like, I know it, I can see you're trying hard, like keep it up. Yeah, I know it looks or, like it's rough. Or I, I, I mean, I don't think it's beyond other people to ask. If you can't help, tell somebody else to ask. To yeah, help. right. Just be like, is can any of you help her out yeah. to the car? Yeah, can you like maybe take the little yeah. one and walk with her, or take one of her heavy like, bags? Like, if you don't see people stepping up to the plate, then you can be a manager. Like we talked about, how moms yeah. are great managers. Like, manage yeah. the shit out of that situation and just delegate yeah. someone to help. Be kind to people. And, and I think, yeah. and have empathy and don't judge just based on what you're seeing on the surface. Exactly. And then I, I also think like, um, you know, there's other situations, like let's say it's not a special needs child. Like what if you're in a parking lot and you see, this actually happened to me once. Um, and I saw like this mom and her kid was throwing this epic tantrum and she like had this cart that she somehow had to get back to like the cart bin of carts. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe, so I, I want to like share the story, but I don't want to sound like, and then I helped her. Aren't I great? That's not what I mean. I mean, like I could relate. Wait to your own horn there, Claire. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to put this out there because it occurred to me in that moment, because maybe this had happened to me a million times before and it had never occurred to me, but there was something about that moment. And probably because of my youngest throwing his epic tantrums, which everybody is always on full display. Like for example, when he told me he was going to shoot me, in yeah. front of a school, right? Uh, screaming and feeling. Um, it, there was something about that where I just felt like I felt really bad for her. And so I was like, let me move that cart for you. Can I take that for you? You yeah, know, can I right. just go move it? And and then the other thing I want to say about that is if you're a parent and you need help, it's okay to accept help. I mean, obviously, if somebody's like, hey, can I carry your bag? And they, you know, there's something about the situation where your gut is telling you this is like not a good situation and you're being taken advantage of or this person's dangerous. Clearly, there are exceptions. But if it feels safe, it's okay to accept help from other people. Yeah. I think also just, like, being more open. So I go into a lot of situations, like, I'll just do it myself. I'll just do it myself. Yeah. Like, I'll just get through it. Like, it's fine. I can get through it. I can do it. Because you can. Because you have to. I can. Right. But wouldn't it be great if I just looked around and I was like, gosh, like, do you think you could help me? Yeah. Um, Like, what, is someone going to be like, no? And then if they do say no, you can be like, dick. (laughs) And then teach your kids not to hang out with dicks. <laughs> that is the moral okay. of that story. I was actually thinking, is she going to call a person a dick? <laughs> yes. Because that's exactly that where my mind went to. Okay, yes. so, yeah, and I mean, I think that, like, yes, you can handle it on your own, obviously, because you have to. And be, and I think when you have to handle stuff on your own, it's just like, no, I got it. I do this all the time, right? Like. But if you really need help and if you feel like it's going to fill up, free up more of like the mental the mental bandwidth that we were talking about, yeah, like think right. about what that's going to give you in terms of cognitive and emotional resources later in the day. It's yeah, like totally. Take the help. Right. Exactly. 
Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so my, my friend's amazing. Um, I wanted to share this because I felt like there are probably people who will listen to this and will feel heard. Like just hearing this, I think parents will feel heard. Yes, you know, totally. Like I'm not the only it's one. It's very relatable. So Susanna, uh, Susanna Taylor, and it's thegirlincharge.com, I believe. Yeah. Just Google the girl in charge. Great. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you guys next time.